Recording the 10th annual Santa Barbara Writers Conference. This is tape number two. This is the author. Always know who did it from the very beginning. Um, I would say mo all authors are a little different. I'm a particularly conscious one. Um, I don't write a book unless I know my story. Um, so I'd say 90, a little more than 90% of the time, or 99, I do know. Now and again, something will happen. I have a friend who changed his murderer when he got to the end. Uh, of course, it's the only mystery he ever wrote, but that's all right. Uh, but he did. I have changed motives, and I have changed ways things happen. Sometimes they've been forced on me. Uh, I had one where I've told this to other many friends. I had a book where I got to the end, and I wanted to accuse the character of a crime. And unfortunately, I hadn't checked to see if it was a crime. So I had to check, and by God, in California, it wasn't. Uh, so I had to play games with it, and I came up with a very good idea. I had my detective simply say, we know you did it, and we can't even get you for it. And then it got that, because it wasn't a crime. He had induced somebody to commit suicide uh, by tricking them. And this is not a crime in, in California. It may be in some other states, uh, maybe, but it isn't here. They couldn't get him for anything, even though it was a doctor who was involved. Uh, but mostly, there are mystery writers who will tell you that they let the characters develop themselves. I tend to question that, really. There's very few of us who don't know what's happening. Now and again, you may change the murder, but if so, it's a small change. It's usually just, you know, it's not that important to, to the plot or to the meaning. It depends what kind of book you're writing, to some extent. You have to let the book carry you along. If, if your book dictates that the murderer, you, the man you saw, the person you thought was the murderer, that the book says it isn't, then follow the book, if it does happen. Uh, of course, I've done novelizations of Charlie Chan where, uh, unfortunately, the murderer was not the one they said, but that wasn't anyone's fault but bad writing in that case. I had to go back and prove differently. Does that help? Okay. Most of the time, you really do know it. You're not going to change it usually, because you usually start with the person. You usually start with the criminal in your mind, usually. Any other questions? Quick, I, do you think we got everybody? Oh, yeah. Are you going to talk about ways of finding uh, technical information? Well, I wasn't. If you want to, fine. For example, I can't figure out how to find out about the operation. All right. Uh, the lady wants to know, am I going to talk about technical information? I said I really wasn't, but I will if she wants. And then she asked how she finds out about the operation of the Mexican police. Um, call them. Because I call the police station in Tijuana and find out. They'll probably talk to you if you speak Spanish. Uh, they might find somebody who speaks English, uh, look it up, write them a letter, if you don't, in English to their information department. I would imagine that Mexico probably is a little like us. Probably every state has its own police department as well as the national police. They have a national police force, obviously. But I don't know about their local police forces. There's probably a police in Tijuana. There's probably a police in that particular state, whatever state that is. I don't know what state Tijuana's in. Uh, I mean, probably there's a one in Guadalajara, probably there's one in Jalisco, the Jalisco police, maybe, and then there's the National, yeah. I would say, from experience, don't call them. The suggestion here was the lady said, don't call them on the telephone. I don't know if that's, but go there. I don't know if this is particularly for the Mexicans or not. Um, I have, when needing to know whether there was a highway patrol or a state police in Wyoming, called them and been told what it was, which I don't remember now. Uh, you know, I'll tell you one thing about that, though, and this is really important if you want little details. I can't tell you except to go directly how you find your technical information. But if you have a particularly technical piece of information, 
The greatest danger is if you think you know it. That's when you're going to be wrong. Uh, every time it's happened to me, and I've really thought I knew it, absolutely, and I didn't have to look it up, that's when I've been wrong. It happened in my second mystery, as I recall. I had a pistol, and I'd held it in my hand to my friends, the same guy who wrote the one mystery novel. Uh, and I, it was a beautiful little seven-millimeter Volta, I thought. I'd held it, I'd looked at it, I'd written it, and it was a wonder I liked the gun. It was very nice, I liked who stole it from, so I wrote about a 7 millimeter Volta. Unfortunately, that book was serialized in Argosy, and Argosy people are gun people. So we got a few letters. Volta had never made a 7 millimeter. Mauser had. And sure enough, I checked with Hal, and it was indeed a 7 millimeter Mauser. So I was in a little trouble, but it's because I knew it. I thought I knew, therefore I was wrong. If I hadn't thought I knew, I would have checked, and then I would have found out that they didn't. All I did, of course, in the next book, I changed it to a 7.65, which Walter did make. Oh, I could, I could go either way, change the caliber or change the maker. I decided to change the caliber. But uh, yeah, 7 millimeters is a very tiny gun, very, very small, and that's why I wanted it. I had a special reason for needing a very, very small gun. And I have another one I can't remember where I thought I knew. Totally wrong. This same guy, poor Hal, I wish he were here to defend himself. But he once wrote a book about the RAF during the war called The Hurricanes of the Hundred Days. It was very nice, except that he had the woman's Royal Air Force uh, wearing khaki uniforms. Unfortunately, they were Air Force Blue, of course. And so through an entire book, he never having been in the war, he was wrong. And this, this, yeah, but he was, you know, he just learned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you should be as technically correct as you can. And don't say, after all, fiction. Fiction is a lot truer than anything else, in my opinion. Uh, but no, you want to be as technically accurate as you can. You're not going to go shoot yourself for a small thing. Probably no one would have caught it, if it except for the Argosy people. Uh, well, I'm sure, well, I don't know if everyone here knows, but I have a one-armed detective, and in my first book, unfortunately, he clasps his hands behind his head twice. Uh, and you know who found that? The same guy I'm telling you about. The book is dedicated to him. He called me up the day he got it. Dennis? I said, yeah. Guess what, I, guess what you did? Twice in the same chapter. I only had him do this once. The other time I had his palms sweaty, but it was plural. <laughs> it's never happened again, but it almost happened in my recent one. I had him have a line that he couldn't keep his hands off a girl. And he has hands. However, I thought about that for a while and realized that a man would say hands, even if he has one arm. He isn't going to stop and think, I can't keep my hand off you. So it was correct. Anyway, I cut the line. But the thing about it is this, be as accurate as you possibly can. No one's going to really yell too much, probably. But if you make an egregious error, a biggie, like if you have the, the New York uh, Highway Patrol in New Jersey, you know, people say, oh my God, the guy's never been in New Jersey in his life. They have a state police, and so on. You don't, you don't want to be wrong if you can help it. Because a good way around it is invent your own county, which I did, then you can make it anything you like. Anything. You're, pre you're pretty safe in California with this. California is a difficult one. Well, the United States is very difficult on police jurisdictions. You really have to, they're different in every state, every township, every county, every city, everything. So you have to check it. That's why I stick pretty much to New York and California, which I know. There's nice. saw another hand over here. Yeah. Yes, I do. Again, it depends. Oh, I'm sorry. She asked, essentially, do I outline heavily, really? Yeah, I do. Yes, I do. It. I outline heavily. Normally, the way I work on a mystery, I have a lot of notes, tons of them. I'm always writing notes. This is something Sid Stevel said in his class this morning. It's very important, I think. Whenever you get a thought in your head of any kind, no matter what it is, and you think it's an idea for a story or an incident or a scene, write it down. 
and file it somewhere, just on a piece of paper. Anyway, you will find after quite a little while that you've written the same scene about 20 times. Good. That means you're thinking about the same scene. You just keep repeating very often, but by the time you get enough of them, you've got a book, in a way. Uh, but when, with a mystery, I have all the ideas. I get a central idea. I have the story, which I'll get to in a minute, I want to say. Then I will do a fairly rough outline. However, when I'm doing the rough outline, if ideas come to me, I'll write them out in full while I'm doing the rough outline, because you never want to let an idea go. Uh, a scene or anything of this nature. So you write out, in other words, I could be starting out meaning to write chapter one, a couple of lines, chapter two, a couple of lines, but if somewhere in chapter two a scene occurs to me, I might write that for a couple of pages then before I go on to chapter three. Then I will write this sort of general, fairly short outline, relatively. Sometimes I sell an outline, which is a little different. You see, you can. If you have a certain track record, you can sell an outline. Um, oh, you can sell it without outline, that's right. Uh, then I will take all these notes I'm talking to you about and I clip them together in chapters so that I will sometimes have a mound that high when I begin. All random scattered notes. Then you start writing and very often you find, which is something I want to get to, that the ideas you've got in chapter three, it's much too soon. And the ideas keep migrating to the rear as you go, which is fine. It builds up the rear. Uh, builds up the same, but I do usually clip them together with a paper clip. I'm, I'm fairly sloppy in that. They're usually handwritten and scrawled and nobody who can read them but me. Well, sometimes they're typed or sometimes they're pulled out of another novel. It's something I didn't use in another novel or something. So, but I do try to end up with a general outline to follow and then this stack of stuff, clip, paper clipped together in chapters. Well, sometimes, you know, one chapter might be, oh, have 10, 12 pieces of paper in it. Another chapter might have a single line. Of course, when the time comes to write it, that single line chapter is the one that gives you the trouble. The other one's easy, you just put everything together. The single line and you have to invent it. Then I usually, when I'm doing that, I will type up kind of a little rough draft. You see, everybody's ways change. Quite honestly, about the first 20 of my mystery novels, I wrote one draft, period. I never write a second draft. At least I didn't. But I write a slow first draft. In other words, I will re-correct a page 10, 20 times as I'm going along. I'll correct it if I just don't like a word. It may, it's, waste, it's wasteful on paper, but it actually saves you time eventually, and paper's deductible. Um, but now I find, maybe I'm getting older, maybe the ideas are getting less, I don't know, but I find that I'm beginning to write first drafts. It's easier for me because I found that I was bogging down, that I would be sitting there trying to write the original draft, and nothing would be happening. And when you do that, you have to keep going. That's when you have to just push ahead. So I've, I'm tending to write rough drafts now, the first draft, and then I'll do a second draft. That's, of course, when the, both the real writing and the fun is in the second draft, in the final draft. Um, I guess we got everybody we're going to get. Why don't I start on this? Um, what I have here, it says, how to write mysteries is, is the category we have. All right, the first thing I want to tell you is this. There are no differences in writing a mystery novel or story from writing any other novel or story. There are absolutely no differences at all. Your story, the main thing you have to do is know your story. It's exactly what St. Stephen said. You really can't write a book unless you have something to write about. Really. Even if it's a mystery, and I don't mean the murder. I mean what the book is really about. Why it happened. What it means. Most writers really have, you have to have this in mind. Now you can write a book. There are those strictly to make money, strictly you're going to have a thriller, strictly a ghost story. Yeah. Uh, you can do it. But I would say that 90% do not. And even if you start that way, sooner or later, the ideas take over. What you really want to think. You know, you can't really put a word on paper without taking an attitude towards it. And you, the idea of writing strictly without meaning anything, uh, I shouldn't sit back, I guess, without meaning anything, I, don't, I really don't think it can be done. 
If somebody tells me they write strictly a portfolio, stri or a bestseller, either way, they're going to just do it, I don't really believe them. I think they have something in mind when they're writing it, something they want to say. Anyway, that essentially is your story, is what you want to say. What's going on, the murder and all that, that's the plot. There's a difference between a plot and a story. I happen to be one of the writers who's particularly interested in story, um, which sometimes the critics point out. I like the story better, better than the plot. Raymond Chandler did. He liked his story so much better than his plot and his scenes that he very, I'm sure you all know the famous story of Big Sleep, where when they were making the movies, the director asked, I think it was Billy Wilder, I don't know who it was, came and asked him who, there's a big scene that you may remember where a car is pulled out of Santa Monica Pier. It's gone off Santa Monica Pier and it's pulled out of the water. And there's a chauffeur in it, quite dead. And going through the book, the director came up with a question and he called Chandler. He said, who killed the chauffeur? Chandler said, I don't know. <laughs> he forgot. He knew it had to be one of two people. It didn't matter to him who killed the chauffeur. It had to be one of the gang. He didn't care. He needed the scene. He loved the scene, pulling the thing out of the water, finding the dead body. The chauffeur wasn't important. So this, you see, for a guy like Chandler, his scenes and what he's saying are more important to him actually than the plot. Now, I don't recommend that you don't know who killed anyone. Uh, I always know who killed who in my books and why and all that. But it does happen uh, when a guy is reading. So essentially, what you're writing about, what you want to tell, aside from the, on all the techniques, demands, needs, tricks, are really the same for a novel, mainstream novel, a science fiction novel, a horror novel, or a mystery novel. They're essentially the same. Uh, there are no differences. And here's my joke. Now, after telling you that, now I'm going to explain the differences. Because okay. there's quite a few when you come down. There really isn't. You understand. But when you are working with a mystery, certain things do come right away to mind. Now, the first thing I know you've all been told, I'm sure, is that mystery novels begin at the end rather than at the beginning. This is a way a misnomer, but in a way it's true. The whole idea of a suspense novel, a straight, a real straight mystery suspense novel with a detective of some kind. I mean, he can be a psychiatrist or a restaurateur or a, a G-man or anything, whatever, or Miss Marple. There is a, an investigator. And when you have an investigator, somebody has to call that investigator in, in one way or another. Somehow the investigator, and the investigator obviously is going to get into the action after the main problems have all occurred. So in, in essence, a mystery novel is really a novel of revelation. It's not a no novel of development in that sense. It's not a novel where things are going to begin in A and change to B. You're already at B. You're going to find out about A as you go along, essentially. Now, there are a lot of novels that are written in the same way. But this is one of the basic differences, is that you essentially start at the end. The murder has been committed. The bank has been robbed. And what your book is about, why it happened, who did it, what led up to it. As you all know, uh, a writer like Ken Miller, which is Ross MacDonald, always goes way back, which is very good. Sometimes his plots will begin 30 years ago or more. It's a very good way of writing. He reveals a great deal. But essentially, I'd say there is a difference, but it isn't really a difference because there's many mainstream novels are written on revelation rather than on an actual straight novel. If you were doing supposedly a mainstream novel, what you would do is you would start with all these characters. And you develop what happens to them. This happens to him as a child, this happens at various, and then finally it leads up to at the very end he kills somebody. Well, a mystery works in reverse. He's already killed him, and you're going to find out what led up to it. But this is really not a real change. It just changes, it changes the technique a little bit as you go along. You have to be careful that you don't reveal, have too much revealed too soon to your readers and so on, but you must reveal enough to keep them moving. 
uh, all this kind. So it, it does. Uh, let me add one more thing to that, though. If you want a little advice as a real trick in writing mysteries, don't begin at the end and don't begin at the beginning. Begin in the middle. It is exactly where, if you ever notice the Sherlock Holmes stories, and he sort of started it, that's where they really do. Somebody comes to Sherlock, or something happens, something has happened already, who comes to Sherlock to hire him, but it's not, the main crime has very often not yet happened. The main crime happens while it's right in, in the story. Very often, uh, Holmes is able to foil the main crime, but something has happened beforehand. There's always something has to have happened before the book opened, in any form of suspense novel. There's no such thing as not something having happened off stage. But a good trick always, in my opinion, is to begin in the middle. Meaning, all right, you've got one murder, maybe, and you've got the actual, the actual motives have probably happened. But maybe they haven't yet been worked out all the way. So that the detective or the old lady or whoever's doing it gets in in the middle, and then we find out. I think Francis, Dick Francis must work to some extent this way uh, a lot because it has races and things. It gives you... It very often gives you a chance for a chase at the end. You see, if you work strictly from the end back, you don't have a chase. You end up with the, the room full of people where you explain uh, who did what, which people don't do much anymore. That's considered not very hot. Uh, I don't know what Sue would say about that because I haven't read her book. I hope it doesn't end with a room full of people explaining it. Uh, you are a murderer. We don't do that much anymore. Um, you tend to... You try to have a, a chase. Sometimes my books end in a chase. Sometimes they don't. Because I don't write a suspense novel in that sense. But they, it can happen. If the book works out that way, I can end up with a chase, yeah. Uh, which means that uh, you have begun in the middle, is what I would almost suggest. Part has happened, a problem has occurred to involve the investigator, but perhaps it hasn't yet been worked out totally. And he can either foil it or not foil it uh, and just follow along. And it, eventually you'll be revealed. Okay. Let's see if I covered everything I was going to say. Yeah, I've covered everything. Okay. And the next thing, obviously, that's different is that a crime, there in, a, in a suspense novel, a mystery novel, there is obviously a crime. There isn't a crime in every mainstream novel. There is always a conflict in every mainstream novel. It simply isn't a crime. Uh, some there are. You've got, of course, all, all the famous ones everybody always points to. You've got brothers, uh, I mean, uh, Crime and Punishment. You've got Brothers Karamazov. All these have crimes in them real, honest-to-goodness crimes, and you do want to find out who did it. Uh, it's a big part of the plot, who did it, in all of them. So there is a certain similarity there, but essentially, one of the basic differences is that there is a crime, and there has to be a motive, and that kind of There has to have been a reason for somebody to do an actual crime. There are, I think, some mysteries, and very good ones, which don't have a crime, but they're, they're kind of unusual, a real crime. Uh, sometimes it can be... <laughs> they can fall. I once had a reviewer who I love. I love reviewers who don't read your books. They're real fun. Now, this one got me really mad because he wrote one of my books, not one of the better ones, one of the Crow books. I had a character, something happened, a person is found dead above a garage and uh, it's been killed by carbon monoxide. Um, and it looks like an accident. So the reviewer said it looks like an accident, but we know, don't we, reader? Of course it couldn't be. Well, it was. So obviously the person hadn't read the book. It was simply an accident in this case. And I will use that. I often have accidents in my book. I work a little differently. I've been called an existentialist writer. I don't know why, but that's it. There are a lot of accidents and things happen in my book. Things are not... Uh, I don't bring them always to justice. I never have courtroom scenes and things like that because one thing, I don't have to think about courtrooms. So I don't want to, but almost nobody ever ends up... Really, they'll get arrested, but that's as far as it goes. Half the time, my guys get off. Uh, well, they get off because... But they're... See, I'm interested in moral guilt. 
more than I am in actual guilt. So that my guys often get off mainly because the system lets them off or they get off with a light uh, sentence. Uh, I'm fairly social minded. All right. But there is obviously a crime. The big thing in doing a crime, but remember this, and here's a good tip. It's the way I've been able to write so many of them. Unlike science fiction, unlike many others, any conflict in the world can lead to an actual crime. Just think about it. Anything. A guy doesn't get tenure at UCSB. Okay, 99.9% .9 of the time he isn't going to go and kill the chancellor. But one-tenth of the time he just might. And that's what you write, and that's what makes a mystery novel. You extrapolate to extremes. You take any conflict, any conflict in the, any conflict in the world. It's not a comfortable position. Any conflict in the world can lead a person to commit a crime. Your job as a mystery novelist is to make the crime believable within the context. You've got to psychologically make it believable. Uh, it is unlikely that my friend Joe Remack say over here will go and kill Chancellor Huttenbach. It's probably unlikely. But if I wanted to do that, I would have to build Joe up in such a way that he was ready to kill the Chancellor for some reason. There has to be some real conflict. And this is how one is able to write a lot of mysteries. You pick them up out of, you know, you just take a very ordinary, a very ordinary conflict. One I worked on was very interesting. I'm not going to be able to recreate it totally, but many years ago, a man I hadn't met came around with his, my daughter and his daughter had met. And he came around and he had a slight, what I thought was a German accent. Turned out to be Swedish, that shows you. But anyway, it was I thought it was German. And I, I suddenly got the idea that this man that I, as someone else, as someone who had been badly treated by the Germans during the war, and that this German, I found out, for some reason this guy had been there, and had been a guard or something like this, and so I kill him. But there's no reason that you can find unless you go all the way back in my history. And this idea, I'm obviously not going to kill his gentleman, but the thought that it's possibly I might gave me a plot. You see, I came up with a plot from it. Um, and this is essentially what you do. Now, normally, you notice I say kill. 99% uh, of the time, again, most mystery novels involve murder. People are interested in murder. It's unfortunate, but that's it. That's what they like. I have written a few years ago. Again, Dorothy, I think it was Dorothy Salisbury Davis, it was, put out a, an MWA anthology called Crime Without Murder, which she had a whole book full of short stories without murder. I have one in there. I was very happy to be in it. There is no murder in the story, but it's very rare. It's very rare. The, 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 so mostly you are talking about somebody committing a murder. You can get a There are cases where it doesn't happen. I think one of the most famous is uh, Dorothy Sayers' Gaudy Night. Yeah, Gaudy Night is Poison Pen Letters, and a very good book it is, if you like Sayers. I like Sayers. Not everybody does. She's rather windy, but she's very nice. Uh, no, well, she's long. She goes on long. I love Nine Tailors. A lot of people tell me they can't read it. I think it's wonderful. Learn all about bell ringing. And it's a good way. Again, that's not a murder either. It's an accident. The kid, the man is killed because he's tied up in the bell tower, and the bells kill him. But they just simply forgot that he's up there. But that's a very complicated plot. That really goes way back and everything else. But it's, it's not too complicated. You can follow Any decent reader can follow it. But you don't... Uh, there is no murder in Gordy Knight. It's the only one I can think of offhand. There are, I'm sure, many others. You can have... Wasn't there one called Above Says Before the Fact or Francis Isles or something that has no murder, I think? Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, you can, of course, even have the narrators, the murderer. There's only two cases I know of. Of course, is the murder of Roger Ackroyd is the narrator. The murderer is the narrator. And there's another one. I think, again, it's Isles. But it's even better than Ackroyd because the very first paragraph says, when I killed so-and-so, but by the time you get to the end, you've forgotten. And it's a really nice job. Really nice job. I forget the actual... I think it might be called... It might be Isles before the fact. I'm not sure. Anyway. Um, 
So the whole idea, it seems to me, a real tip for writing a mystery, just think up anything, any really important conflict, and if you can you establish the psychological importance of this to your character, he could be driven to a crime. I think this can happen. We all know this. Uh, look, we, got, we have case right in the newspaper recently of some fellows who have committed an illegal act, and it really is rather unfortunate that they did, but they, uh, the sheer need to... Uh, Shine in your profession can sometimes force you to make you do make mistakes, and this can lead to a crime novel. It really can. These things happen. Uh, now, I already touched on my third point, which it has to be consistent in its own terms. What I mean is exactly that. You can establish that a college professor would kill his chancellor, but only you've got to really establish it. You've got to make this man's background believable, and you've got to fill it in enough so that the reader will accept that he could have his momentary insanity. Clearly, all except for professional murders, everybody is a little insane when they kill someone, clearly, momentarily. I mean, this is without question. Uh, we are not people who would normally, I think, kill. So uh, obviously, you have to be a little bit pushed beyond your control, which is uh, insane uh, when you really do it. It's maybe not legally, but to some extent you are, except, of course, in the case, I say, of a professional some form of professional, whether he's a good guy professional or a bad guy professional. You know, we have CIA men and we have hit men. And they both kill professionally sometimes, um, which is a little different. Because I think, to, well, you have to be a little off your rocker to be either, I think, but not necessarily. I'll, I'll accept the possibility that they're quite sane. Uh, but you must, the book, the book must have its own logic, always. You've got to be that. You can be, it can be illogical for the rest of the world, but you must stay. In other words, somebody can say to you, that's not probable. You can say, yeah, but it's possible. And if I've written it well enough, they'll believe me. As long as it, it really only has to be possible. It's nicer if it's probable. But sometimes it, you have to make it possible. Remember that when you're doing it. That means characterization. That means psychological understanding. That means building up the background of the character. If you want a guy to go out and kill a German for no reason, you're going to have to put him in a concentration camp, or you're going to have to make him a prisoner of war, or you're going to have to do something of this nature, where he was subjected to pressure that surfaces later. And then, then this is believable at this point. I hope it's believable anyway. Uh, because now I say suspense must be kept out. All right, we all know that. But also so much characterization, so much your story, so much your plot. In writing any book, Again, Sid Steer, somebody mentioned this this morning, I think Sid did, and maybe it's here. One of the basic things in writing, any form of writing, don't, if you, well, don't allow yourself to write even a paragraph that does only one thing. It's writing. In other words, that just moves the plot. There's a very old, well, there's a French poet, I'm trying to think of his name, Paul Valéry, a very great poet, who said he could never write fiction, although he did later, because he could never bring himself to say, the Countess put on her hat and went out. He felt that this, this is a ridiculous, this is meaningless use of words. It doesn't tell you anything. He's a poet. He, wants, he won't waste his time, he said. Right, I'll say this. I don't like the, the Countess put on her hat and went out, unless the fact that the Countess put on her hat is significant to her, as well as to give you, don't use a line just to get her off stage. That's the idea. Don't move your character out the door just to get them out the door. As they're going out the door, try to make it that you learn something about them. 
You know why they're going out the door. Or it says something about the plot. They're leaving the room because they're mad or whatever. But mainly it shows a character. It shows you've got, or it, it says something you want to say. It says uh, some comment on life, whatever. Every sentence, really, you really should be every word, but you can't have poets as every word. But essentially every sentence, and certainly every paragraph, really ought to be made to carry weight. Let me give you another example. I don't know if you know, they all know the term of a, a beat. It's a term I use. Say you're having dialogue. You want to indicate that a question is asked and the guy is reluctant to answer it. So he pauses. He doesn't answer it right away. Well, an easy way to say is he, you know, he paused, he did it. But that's amateurish. I wouldn't do this. What you have to do is show the pause. You see. In other words, I asked a question and he looks at me, say, and while that's happening, we write a paragraph. We write a paragraph to give the reader actual space before the answer comes. Then the beat, th it has happened. The reader has been doing something else while we're waiting for the answer. In doing that something else, though, don't throw it away. Don't have it just nothing. Have it some comment on the character, some comment on the detective, the way he's thinking. Uh, have it a comment on the plot. Have it a comment on the society. I don't care. It's got to be something. Something the detective would think about at this point. Something the man might be doing. Whatever it is, but show it is revealing him. If you want to show that he is mentally in turmoil, don't say he was in mental turmoil. Show him in mental turmoil in one way or another. And this gives you it happening. So that if he leaves the room, we'll say, have his leaving be significant more than actually just get him out of the room because you don't want him around anymore. And unfortunately, in, when you're beginning writers, very often do that. They just move him off stage. Many, again, many years, I understand that. I'm not that old. But... Um, I was sitting up in Hyde Park with the gentleman who was supposed to show up here but didn't, God be down. Not then, but we were doing, it was summer stock, and we were doing Visitor to a Small Planet. So we were sitting in the audience watching a play called, now I'll never remember its full name now, but it's something about The Last Gentleman or something like that. It's a biography essentially of Angie Biddle Duke. And it was a famous play, and it's about down in Philadelphia mainline. Well, Vidal sat there watching them go on and off. He was dying in hysterics. He said he worked so hard for entrance and exit. All this author was doing, he'd have a guy on stage, and he wanted to get him off. He'd have him turn to the wing and say, Oh, I say, wait a minute, and go on. And Vidal was absolutely dying. He said, you don't get anyone off the stage that way. There's no reason for something. He said, Oh, wait, I'll be coming. This is the only way he was getting off. It adds nothing to the play. There's no reason. He just had to get him off stage. So he got him off. That's the same as, you know, in Shakespeare, while they're always carrying the body off. That's because they had no curtain. So before you could do the next scene, you had to get the body off the stage. So his characters pick out, and it says exit carrying body all the time. So they go, but that was a technical necessity. See, that was a necessity. But Shakespeare's good. He would try his best to have some lines as they were exiting carrying the body to add something to it. But he had to have his people pick up a body literally and take it off, or the body would be lying around in the next scene, which you can't have. It's a thing that happens in theater in the round, obviously, and all that. If you've got a dead body, you've got to get it off stage, or he lies there through the whole wrong time. But essentially, I think I'm giving what to me is perhaps the most important tip on any form of writing. You've got to make your words do a lot of work. All of them. Make your scenes. It's the whole essence of writing, really, is that. Don't, don't do one thing with your scene. Do everything. In fact, the more things you can do with it, the better. If you can have one line that uh, says what you think a line, it characterizes uh, yourself, uh, uh, characterizes the other character, moves him off stage, or anything you want. But it's really good. The more you can do, the better. All right. Did I? Hey, I remembered that. How about that?
Uh, now, we get to another interesting thing that bothers me in when I'm reading early mystery novels very often. We have an investigator, nearly always. Not always, but nearly always, there is an investigator. Too many times when I'm reading a beginner's novel, the investigator goes from place to place and asks his questions and his interviews and go there without really having a logical reason to do so. They're going there only because the author has to get him there. So remember that when you're moving your detective around, whoever he is, he's got to, the audience, not only he has to have a reason to go, the audience has to know what the reason is. Now it can be very, can be done very subtly. It can be done very lightly. But you must, in other words, if he's going to call on, oh, say you want him to call on the police chief, you have to have planted somewhere earlier he has a reason to go to the police chief. See, your, your reason as the author of getting him to the police chief is for the police chief to reveal some facts. But you have to have him go there for a real reason not just to be told those facts. You see, he can't be passive. He's got to, your detective can't be passive. He's got to find things out. It still happens to me sometimes to this day. An editor will tell me, you know, too much is happening to him. Things are being revealed to him without him working. No good. He's really got to do the work. Well, whoever your investigator is, it can't keep happening serendipitously. However you pronounce the word. It can't happen by chance and by... Uh, you know, happen, happenstance to him so that when he goes places he has to have a logical reason for going everywhere he goes and he should find things out not have them handed to him or her or whatever it is always and this is very important it really is I think I'm going on a little long no uh, we already talked a little bit about the idea of the pace and of revealing things as you go along. Again, almost anyone when writing a suspense book will have too much in the beginning. There will be too many things revealed to the audience too soon, almost always. As you write along, you find yourself moving them back. If you don't, you better look at them carefully because you probably should. You shouldn't let things... Don't forget, people are reading a mystery. And in essence, just, they just need a touch to keep the suspense going. You don't have to tell them too much. Just enough. And it's, by the way, while you're at it, it is not a good idea to have them uh, going all the time summarizing. This is not good. Either. Summarizing what's going on. This is not considered very good. This is the well, had I but known school and all that kind of thing. You don't want always to be summing the plot up or having the detective think now. This used to be done more. This and this happened and that and that happened. Now, Lord Peter admittedly does it in Sayers very often. He does sit down, but he does it in a much better way, in a very witty way, and he's a very witty character. He does sit down and try to sometimes summarize what's happening, but she's a good writer. She doesn't throw anything away or give away the plot when he's doing it, and she doesn't make it tedious. It doesn't happen too often. Now and again, you will have to summarize a little bit. Now, he goes to bed. He's got to go to bed sometimes, so he ruminates a little. But again, while he's ruminating about what's happened, you should have him doing something else, too should be something else going on. He should be revealing in character and himself and thinking other things too. Um, I said don't over-explain people as you go along. Don't under-explain. You've got to keep their interest. Remember, somebody else wanted me particularly to mention something. Uh, you know, just by being in a suspense novel, a character is automatically a suspect, essentially. Really, you don't have to work hard to point the finger. Look what he's doing. You don't have to do that. You get into melodrama too much if you do that. You overdo it. Essentially, simply by being in the novel, the character is going to be suspect because presumably he is involved. The person, the character is involved with the, those involved in the crime. So and it's all part and parcel. This is the one reason I think that Ken Miller, again, had his dicta, which is that 
all characters should at least appear twice. Eh, it's a good idea. I don't always follow it. Lately, I've been following it less and less. However, I will say this. If a character appears only once, then that character probably is not going to be considered by the reader as much of a suspect. As soon as they appear twice, though, the reader is going to say, aha, I wonder. And what you do, you simply leave it nicely ambiguous. You don't have to say, did he do it? You simply don't uh, say, don't say, he didn't do it. That's all. He couldn't have done it. Don't rule anybody out. But you don't, you don't have to rule them in is a big one. You don't have to point a lot of fingers and to rule a person in. Just don't rule anyone out as you're going along. And then they'll be automatically suspect. And it's very nicely done. You can handle that very well on that. I, I remember one of my favorites that I did, I had real fun with. I have a character who is automatically suspected. Everything was right. He gets thrown in jail. And it's absolutely certain he did. He gets thrown in jail. But then, of course, somewhere about three quarters of the way through, it becomes quite clear he couldn't have done it. So he's let out of jail. The thing is, of course, he did do it, as we find out. Takes a little while, but that's a nice little throwing him off. But it, he looks so obvious. And then you do throw him in jail, but then he, then he doesn't look obvious. It looks like he's clear. But he didn't. He is guilty in the end. This is a, a trick you do, but you can't do it as a trick. It's got to be logical. It's got to be germane. And it's got to, be, it's got to grow out of the whole plot. It's got to do that. If I got anything else, reveal your plot and say, don't. Oh, well. I say, I don't always follow the advice of they have to appear twice. But I've had a lot of books around. Probably a good idea when you're starting out. Try not to have characters that appear only once, unless there's something like a counterman or a waiter or something like that. It is best when doing your plot. And I'm assuming that you realize in any good mystery novel, you don't have one plot, you have two or three. That they do have to get you know, A single plot is a very, very hard thing to work with and probably will not hold suspense. You must have subplots. Usually, like in Ken, the subplots, in Ross McDonald, the subplots very often end up very closely related. But not always. He will very often have two quite different plots that happen to have met. They've overlapped at a certain point to, con to confuse the detective and the reader. But they're actually quite separate plots. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any particular reason? Yeah. The question was, how did they create, uh, write, uh, the Columbo series? How is it done? And the lady was appreciative of the way the Columbo series was written and the way uh, you go about following Columbo while he gets his, his man. Um, yeah, I don't know why if you had any particular reason for bringing that up, but actually it just happens to happen that I was involved. Um, not actually, but I went down after the pilot of Columbo was written. This is answering your question, though it doesn't sound like it. Uh, I, my agent at the time got me down there and I went in to watch a screening of the pilot because they were looking for writers. And there were 42 of us in the room. I was the only one without a screen credit. Uh, I got as far as, as uh, trying to outline over the telephone. I had a 16-page outline. I soon learned later. My agent, by the way, they don't let you put anything in writing until you get paid, uh, which is a difficult thing. Anyway, it didn't work. I was too complicated. Most novelists are. And I hadn't really caught on the gimmick yet. I'll tell you about that. But yes, they had a stable of writers who I don't know. There were, say, 40 of us in the room. How many of them they hired? I don't know. Maybe they probably screened another 40. But they had more than one writer. Levinson and Link ran the show. It's their show. And I think they, had, they were the producers. And I think they probably oversaw. 
Uh, you heard somebody mention, oh, again, no, it's Steve. Writing for television, uh, of course, is a cooperative affair, always. I'm sure you all know that the script is done in colored paper, so that each color is for a different draft. Uh, you say you have white for your original script of 100 pages. Before it's ended, if you have five white pages left, you're very lucky. I think Sue will back me up on that. Um, you end up, you can end up with as many as six different colored or more. Paper, meaning that there's been six drafts and very often six writers. This kind of thing, we'll work on it. Now, I can't tell you how they work, but they always, it's a, it's a cooperative affair, but there's usually an overseer, as I think there probably was on the Columbo series, there's usually someone he's called a creator or something, to make sure they stay within the realm. I have a friend, Tim Mashler, who does also. Tim took a long time finally explaining to me what television was all about, and it's the anathema to a novelist. Television doesn't care, I'm told, about plot or story. They care only about protagonist, antagonist, and that's it. Uh, and of course, Columbo is the perfect example. It is so perfect an example that there is no mystery. So I'm not really talking about Columbo, there isn't any mystery in it. They tell you right away who did it. Then the whole job just is to see Columbo go through his bag of tricks and catch the villain. And they, they realized this so much that they began casting all the big stars as the villain. So the whole thing was just, how was Peter Falk going to catch Donald Pleasance? That's all. Was he gonna, how was he going to get the wine involved in, in it and that? It's fun if that's your bag. Uh, there have been writers of novels who've done this. Actually, if you come down to it, that's what the Mike Shane novels really are. They're an example of Mike Shane and how is Mike going to get the villain. Except the difference there is because he doesn't, you don't know in advance who did it. But your job, the reason, of, the reason a series like Mike Shane is so popular is that the reader loves Mike Shane. It's as simple as that. Well, that's what happens on television. You love Jack Lord or you love Peter Falk and you want to watch him and the plot really doesn't matter. But they do create for a lot. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Sid. You did one. You lucky guy. Aha. Uh -huh. Hey, you want to get, a, get the, that mic if you want to talk, or you won't be on tape. You didn't hear me announce. You've got to be in a mic or you don't get on tape. It matters to them. Go to the mic. Go on. The room's big enough. I always wanted to send somebody to a mic. <laughs> I feel like a political convention. Point you're of order. To, you're supposed to tap it and say, can you hear me, Mr. Chairman? <laughs> okay. Uh, I did a... Uh, to answer the question about how they yeah. did that show, it was Lincoln Levinson. They were the creators. They very clearly specified that it was not a mystery, but a suspense show because they wanted it discovered. Uh, not to give you too much detail, although it's interesting to me, I did a play at Actors Studio, and uh, one of the co-creators of the show saw the play because a girlfriend was in it, and they liked the dialogue. They came to me and they said, His girlfriend, "We need a." Uh, we need a Columbo. Do you have anything? And I said, I have an idea for a movie of the week, but maybe I would let it go. And to make a longer story short, uh, I took it in. They introduced me to the head of uh, Universal Motion Pictures series, which this was a 90-minute show. I told him the idea. He thought, that's terrific. He took me by the hand. He led me to the story editor. And he Who said, was that then? Steve Bochco. Who's now involved with I those a guy named, I think, Everett Greenbaum or something like that. I well, had. no, he's a comedy writer. I don't think oh, okay. he was with that show. Right. But anyway, uh, it was a terrific introduction for me. It was not so good for Mr. Bochco because they told the story editor, uh, here's Sid Stiebel, who he'd never heard of me in his life, understandably. Uh, it's been approved by the network. He'll sit down, he'll tell you the story, and then he's going to go away and write it. Russ, no. Uh, left. 
I told the story to Mr. Bochco, and he said, but you've broken the formula. And I said, well, yes, but the network has already approved it. Now, the formula was, as Dennis said, you see the killing right away, so you know who did it. What I had was the motive for a killing. I dropped the first shoe, which I loved, I still like, and I would like to steal it back from Universal. You see an adulterous situation. The protagonist, the eventual killer, sneaks back into town. He's on a political trip, and he witnesses his wife in bed with another man. You subsequently discover that this man is going to be his political campaign manager. He's running for Senate. So you wait to discover when the killing's going to happen. It does indeed happen. I wrote a script. Everybody loved it. Eventually, they did not shoot it because that season ended and the next one began. There were new story editors, one thing and another. But I really feel yeah. that because I broke the formula, it didn't get made. Probably. But yeah. that's, that's Columbo. They do like... That's why I tell people, you talk the idea, they want to get into the act. Yeah, they well, don't want to see it. As I said, said, you know, I read it over the phone to some of this guy. It was 16 page out, as best I took it from one of my novels. The only one I had that might have worked in that backward format to some extent. But they felt much too complicated. Novelists are always too complicated for That's them. That's true. As a matter of fact, if you want the fun, when I went down for that screening, uh, again, a lot of people have heard the story, but. When it was over, they said, do we have any questions? Well, I had a few questions. And I think that's probably where I killed myself right there. <laughs> uh, I said, how could Lee Grant pick up was about a 200-pound man, get him out of the living room and into the trunk of her car? She weighs about 98 pounds, I think. I didn't see she could do it. Also, he is shot, he's shot three times on a beige rug. There is no blood. None at all. There's no blood stain. There were a few other beauties like... The whole plot of the pilot, if you recall it at all, turns on the fact that there is not, there is a parachute in a briefcase when there's supposed to be money so that the person can bail out. Well, Colombo and no one else ever looks in the briefcase to check the money. And I think that's a little crazy, number one, but without it, there's no plot. If they would have said, oh, a parachute, you have some plan in mind. And the last thing I asked them was, what the hell, anyway, it took place in Beverly Hills. I said, what's Colombo doing in Beverly Hills? He has no jurisdiction. He's LAPD. They don't care about that. Yeah. They just don't care. They, they do attribute the success of the show to the characters. Sure. Yeah, it's the characters, yeah. the whole The dirty thing. raincoat. I found I couldn't yeah. do it, that kind of thing. Well, no one really asked me, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to be able to do that antagonist-protagonist thing. I mean, Tim Master did give me a shot a couple of times to try it, but uh, I just, not my cup of tea, that's all. Well, you've written, you've written TV shows, haven't you, sir? Yeah. Sue Grafton over there knows a lot more about it. I hope, are we relatively accurate here? Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we always make it look worse, of course, but that's all right. The money's nice. Of course, again, I don't know if the money, for all the hassle, whether it's really that much more than you make on a novel, I don't know. It depends on the novel. All right. Uh, the last thing I really have to say is really, I'll come full circle um, back to... The mystery novel is just a novel as anything else. Uh, the last thing I'm going to say is, when you're writing a novel, don't slavishly follow anyone's advice, not even mine. All right? uh, now, any questions? Uh, let's have questions, yes. No. Um, do you have to have an investigator? No, uh, of course not, but... How are you going, what, what kind of book are you going to come out with? You're going to come out with certainly not a mystery. You're going to come out with a straight, with a suspense book only. 
Um, because otherwise, somebody has to find out what happened. Now, I don't care who it is, but whoever that person is, is an investigator. It doesn't have to be a professional investigator. I mean, Miss Marple's no professional. She's just an old, you can be a babysitter. It can be anyone. But somebody has to be the, the, the force of the author finding it out. I suppose you could write a book in which there was kind of a never-named omnipotent force finding it out. It'd be interesting to try. I've never really thought of it. You have a couple of cases, of course, where detectives have no name or anything. Their name never appears. That's Hammett and Bill Pronzini both do that. And Hammett has just a Cornell Arp. He does that. He has no name. And Pronzini's character doesn't even have that. He doesn't even have a designation. He's just nothing. He's just I all through the book. But you do have to have an investigator to make a mystery novel. I can't see any other way unless you have... I say, unless you really have some totally omnipotent force finding it out, I don't know who that would be. Well, you have a psychological novel. You don't have a, a mystery novel. Hmm. And then how is the murderer revealed? And then she's the investigator. She herself is the investigator, obviously, yeah. Somebody has to reveal it. Otherwise, you have a straight psychological novel. If nothing is ever revealed, it's simply the town reacting to her. Uh, one, one last thing, a little point. There is a very good South American writer named Mario Vargas Losha, who wrote Mario Vargas Losha is his name. It's two L's. Um, he wrote a short novel in which an entire community speaks. It's an interesting experiment. He changes from I to we to us to them, all in the same paragraph. But it's very rare that we do this in a mystery, but one day I might try. In other words, the entire barrio is talking. As itself, it's made into an entity. And it's a very interesting experiment. I'm not so sure it works, but it was a good try. I thought a very interesting thing, and you can do this kind of experiment. Yes, I'm going to... What you do... question is, how do you get an ordinary person willing to go to the risk of being an investigator, uh, who is, you know, a non-professional? Oh, that's simple. You usually open the book with the threat to the person, that they have to do it to get out of a bigger threat. In other words, almost always when you have such a case, uh, the person has trapped. They're either accused of murder or <clears throat> the gunmen are after them by some mistake. Uh, 39 Steps, of course, is done that way. That goes all the way back. That's John Buchan. The guy, uh, a body shows up in his apartment, the police think he did it. So then his job, he has to find out who really did it. And he goes all over hell. He's really chased all over Scotland and everything else till he finally finds the murderer. It's a spy story, but it's also, of course, a, a whodunit. And this is how it happens. You very reluctantly don't want to do it, but you do it because you're trapped. Nine out of ten. You could have Miss Marple's a busybody. That's her way of doing it. She just has to find things out. So she just walks in where angels fear to tread. You could do that if you want to, sure. But you've got to establish yours. You can have the local busybody, the local minister. He has to tend to his flock. and Something's happened, so he investigates. I'm sure this happens to uh, uh, Harry Kemmelman's rabbi and uh, Keyes, I can't pronounce his name, Father Small, and so on. They, get, they become investigators. But of course, they do have an official position in the community. They're supposed to risk. Judy, did you have your hand up? Yeah. 
Oh, I... What is my favorite way to knock off people in a book? I don't get into that usually, Judy. Whichever way is convenient. Uh, mostly, I go along with, with Hammett and Chandler, you know, who said... Well, Hammett particularly, he said that he was... Well, all he really did was to turn murder back to the people who were good at it, rather than the old ladies and the English country houses and so on. Um, so normally, I... Whichever comes to hand, probably the most common with me is a blunt instrument. No, what is the most common? I'm trying to think. I, I try not to keep repeating the same one, but I'm afraid I tend to. Uh, but or, I don't have any gimmick murders except accidents of some type will happen. But a, a gun is usually the nicest way. A, a knife I've been... That's it. Lately I've been using a knife quite a bit. That's because... Well, that's because I've had a professional killers in the last two who use ice picks or knives or something like that, which is what a professional killer often does. Uh, but guns usually, or blunt instruments, or being pushed out a window, or lots of things. But I, I don't worry about that. That comes out of the crime. I don't use exotic. I don't think I've ever poisoned anyone. I'm not sure. I once used a melee Chris. That was in the one that didn't make Colombo, yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever poisoned anyone offhand. Poison is, poison is a little old lady's weapon. You don't use poison now. I hope not one of mine, but kind of. I'm gonna, I don't know if I can paraphrase that question. Um, how long do you keep going on? in a novel with a, with, a, with a special situation, that's really what you're saying, with a crisis. Most suspense novels involve a crisis. How long can the crisis go on? Uh, varying, varying degrees. One, it depends on your ability as a writer, how long you can keep it going. Two, the kind of crisis. Uh, the one we're saying, Buchan's 39 Steps. Um, it doesn't cover an awful lot of time. I think it's a couple of weeks. It's a spy story, and he has to run, so he gets chased to Scotland, but then he has to... See, it's a circular story. It begins in a musical with a, with a man who's, who's professionally a memory man, and it ends up back there because the memory man... It's a lovely ending. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, the 39 Steps are spies. It is the name of a spy organization. So what has happened is that their plans, some plans have been stolen, and they've given them to Mr. Memory to memorize, and that's how they're going to get him out of England. And Mr. Memory, though, prides himself on answering any questions. So our hero stands up in the music hall and says, what are the 39 steps? And he repeats it, and the guy starts to tell exactly what the asshole gets shot from the balcony and they catch the criminal. But you see, this is, a, this is a chase, essentially, and a chase can go on as long as the author has inventiveness to keep it going, to change it. Um, some plots take place in very short space of time. Most mystery novels, real mysteries, take place in a relatively short space of time. I like ones that last longer. In which case, by the way, you do get your cast of characters off stage to some extent. Uh, when I have a book that, like that, I usually have part one, part two, part three or something, and I end part one, and they start. Uh, Hammett does this in The Dane Curse, particularly. Uh, he wrote it in installments, as Dickens did his, for Black Marsh magazine. And you can tell exactly where every installment ended. But he has that, he does take a long period of time. And it's a very, I recommend it, by the way, if you've never read it. The Dane Curse, it's called. It's one of his early Continental Op stories. It'll, I'm not going to give you anything because it's got a real zinger in it. Um, the Dane Curse, D-A-I-N, the Dane Curse, Dashiell Hammett. 
it's he only wrote five and only four and good um, the thin man is not good but wait a minute one last thing on this Chandler and the way you handle it if you want a period of time is you do have to bring it to an end Chandler in the long goodbye which is about my one of my absolute favorite mystery novels covers about a year or a little more but the case must come of course to to hiatus in between there have to be pauses when he goes on to other things and then comes back to this case the case it, it, the cases appear solved but then aren't it's the way you keep a long time going usually but it's really up to the skill of the writer how long he keeps it going my goodness Dickens kept, keeps it going a long time yeah Um, the question is, I suppose, when or why should an author intrude into the book by being first, by putting it in first person, or where should he stay in third person, or I presume second even? Um, in the first place, the choice is a matter of style, how you want to handle it. You know, the I character is not the author. That isn't, an I character is not necessarily author intrusion at all. Author intrusion is very often a omnipotent point of view, is much more author intrusion. Uh, somebody sitting up there on Mount Olympus describing and explaining the action is much more the author manipulating. Dear reader, this kind of thing is always done third person. You know, if you had known, dear reader, that we were going to do this or that, this is the way it works very often back say, in, in the 19th century. They work this way. Um, I, you should never confuse the I character with necessarily the author. Uh, the I character is a persona, perhaps, of the author. The reason, obviously, you use an I character in private detective novels is it's much it's the best way. You see, by using an eye character, you, your point of view is that nothing is revealed except to the detective. And he can act as the eyes of the reader. And therefore, when... But, by the way, I don't know if you know this, it certainly happens in my novels. The eye detective often knows things the reader does not towards the end. Why I, the way I handle that, of course, is I don't cheat. I simply don't state it. I will have him find something out and then cut to another scene and begin that scene with him acting on what he's found out and then he'll tell the readers what he's found out but I, I don't fool the reader I simply leave him in the dark to some extent uh, for instance in, in a recent one I have him go to the sheriff and something happens but all I wrote was my last stop I made another stop at the sheriff's office before I went back so and so then a little while later I reveal what he did at the sheriff's office um, presumably the technique I won he is writing the, there is that in my first book I actually did that I have a place where he gets out of character and, well, he's in character. The detective, Danny, and his girlfriend are discussing the writing of the book. I've never done it again because they don't appreciate this kind of thing really in mystery novels. Anyway, you can't do it too often. I enjoyed doing it. It was kind of fun. Uh, they sat and discussing it. It's when Danny says every, everything's, you know, she says something about, are you writing the book about uh, Jojo or are you writing this about yourself? And he says, everything you write's about yourself. And so on and so forth, which it is. In many ways, it's also about other people. But you pick it. Look, the main reason I pick the eye character is it gives me a wonderful chance to get my opinions on paper. Tell you the truth. If I use, and I've, I don't always use the eye character, if I use third person, I can't do that. I cannot intrude my personal opinions into the book. I'll have to give them to the mouths of other characters. And so on. By using an eye, I get to comment on the world, which is one reason why I write. Uh, but I, it's, very often it's done that way with private detectives, but not always. One of the great books, the most famous of all, um, mystery novels is the Maltese Falcon and it is not written first person it's written in fact if you ever want to read it check out a very interesting thing it is written third person totally externally 
totally. And if you think that's easy, you try writing it someday. It is written he, but Sam Spade never thinks. Not once in the whole book. He simply reacts as if you were watching him. It, it's noticeable in the opening of the second chapter. The phone rings, he picks it up. You don't even hear what's said on the other end. You just hear him say, Dead? Okay. Hangs up, sits back, scratches himself, lights a cigarette, takes his pajamas off. He never once ruminates on the death of his partner. He just sits there and thinks about it. You can see it. You know what's happened. You know Miles is dead, and you know that Sam is thinking about it, but you don't ever find out what Sam is thinking, except by what he says all through the book. It's quite a trick. You try it. How hard it is to resist to say, he thought, or something like that. He never, that's it. But it is written in third person. Uh, in fact, I think Hammett always writes third person. I don't think he wrote first, whereas Chandler, of course, writes first. It's, huh? Are they first? Yes, of course, they would have to be. You're right. Yeah. They would have to be since he's never named. Yeah, they would have to be first person. Yeah, that's right. He goes right in, but he's, you know, he's very clever at disguising what he's doing in that way. You know, you're not sort of aware of it. I'm trying to think of the opening about Poisonville in, in Red Harvest. He doesn't say I that often. And that's right at the beginning, I think. And maybe he just says it once, but then he doesn't use it a lot. His characters do not think a great deal. It's Hammett's style. It's not to make his characters ruminate very much. They act. Which, of course, is all part of the way Hammett viewed life and the world, in actuality. And his people act, yeah. There's another hand I saw over there. No? Oh, okay. Let me get a ball to bet you. Oh, Miles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, so is... He's not terribly unsavory. He's not much more unsavory than Sam is, actually. Yeah, Sam, Sam hangs in. Oh, Sam is... Uh, no, Hammett is a good writer. Happens to be a very good writer. He leaves nice ambiguities. You are, when Bridget says that if, if, the, if the falcon had been real and you had the money, would you still have turned me in? He says, well, I don't know. It would have been another piece of weight on your side. So you don't, you don't really know, would Sam or wouldn't he? Uh, Hammett does not tell you. And you have to figure out yourself on your view of what, he's, what Sam is like. Would he or would he not? Uh, it, okay, yeah. Right? Oh, sure. It's one of the most unusual things that's ever appeared on the screen, where everything's identical, right off the page, with a few deletions. You can learn about screenwriting and novel writing at the same time. Well, that's because it's such a marvelous novel. And also, the thing that I think gets everybody when they first see it, and then read the book, is the remarkable casting, with the exception of Sam himself. Everybody is exactly as described by Hammett, to a T, except Sam. Sam is supposed to be a big blonde man, as you know, and Bogart is not a big blonde man. But everyone else, it follows it right down the line. I've never seen anything where, where the actors and the characters in the book are so perfectly matched. It's very unusual. There's some more hands over here. Ah. It's a nice... Uh, how important is it for a murder victim to be established as a favorable character? Favorable character. Let me put it this way first. I don't know if it's important to be favorable or unfavorable. It is, I think, particularly when starting writing mysteries, very nice to have the audience know the person, the main victim, before he's killed. This is not always easy. 
Because, you see, as I said, in the beginning, a, a detective usually has to be brought in. So something has to have happened. So sometimes the victim is dead before the book opens, which is then very hard to characterize him for the reader. But I've tried very hard in my books to try to at least have one scene with the victim before I knock him off. Uh, so that the audience does have a little chance at least to get to know him, if not to love him. Uh, you can have, uh, I just see no reason why he should be favorable. He can be a rat, he can be anything you like. Uh, the thing that holds a reader to a mystery isn't so much the crime as the reasons around it, and so on. And the other character, the characters who are alive, the killer is probably more interesting than the kill, I think. If you're going to have a, if you're going to keep going, your killer better be a little more interesting, and the possible next victims and those, the survivors, should be more interesting than the dead man, or you're in a, I think you're probably in a little trouble. I would suggest that there are, of course, exceptions all the time, and I have really stopped trying too hard to do that, because one thing it did for me was to make me have so many characters in my early chapters that I got yelled at for it. I don't like to be yelled at. So I'm getting so that I introduce them much more slowly now, which, of course, makes it harder to introduce the murdered person uh, a long way in advance. But, again, I, all I can say is, if you can make your murder victim known to the reader, that's good. Obviously, it's a plus. He does care. He, he, he cares more for someone he's read about than for someone he hasn't read about. But sometimes you can't do it. It's just not possible. So any more? Any more hands? Is there any particular length that's uh, an optimum length? Yeah, mostly they want them shorter. Uh, now, I would say, I used to average 200 typewritten pages, but I get a lot on a page. I get close to three, three, 300 words to a page. Uh, so somewhere in the neighborhood, see, it's hard. They like them relatively short. Normally, they don't like them much more than 65,000 words. Uh, Dave Dresses, Mike Shane's ran 45,000 usually. They show it, they're kind of thin. Uh, I'm accused of writing that. I have been accused of writing complicated books. The reason that they are often is that I cram a lot of action, a lot of characters into fairly short books. So I've been saying the hell with them and getting longer. My last two have been running 260, 270 typewritten pages. That's still, because you say there are well, some of the most famous, The Long Goodbye is a very long one, probably the longest. And it's, maybe that's why it's my favorite. He had a chance to get something done in it. It's a fine book. Uh, <coughs> I would like to go... 85, 90, actually, before I... But most of them, no, they want them shorter. Usually, you look up a mystery's printed, it runs under 200 pages printed, usually. I find that a cheat. I don't like it. I like it that they... How long is yours, Sue? I think it's a bit longer. In manuscript, how much did it come out? Printed. Yeah, it is a longer one. 315 is very long. But Sue has more of a track record, you see, and that's the way it goes. She... Uh, one, look, once you've got uh, certain things published, or you have... A, they have faith then you can push yourself a little harder. Although you'll get into troubles. On mine, The Slasher, which is my first really long one, uh, in England, they cut it. I was very annoyed, but they insisted they had to cut it. And I insisted if they cut it, I wouldn't read it. Which I haven't. They cut it, yeah. It's very really annoying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I had, this wasn't a question, this was a statement. A traveler likes to pick a book that they can finish on the trip. All I can say is that uh, authors don't love you on that. Uh, I want a book that you have to put down and pick up again and read again to get what I'm saying. I want you to stop. 
Well, I've had people tell me they could read one of my books in three hours. That, that does not endear them to me. I say, read it again. You missed everything. Well, there you are. Ah, uh, no, of course this is what. After all, we do have to face mysteries. Are to an extent, escape reading. I don't like to face that fact, and I work very hard to make it not escape, which is probably why I'm not that successful. But uh, they keep publishing them, but they don't keep reading them that much. I do well with critics and editors, not so well with readers. Maybe that's why. My books are not that easy to read. In fact, I had one guy who liked my work very much, but who called them devilishly complicated. They're not. I like that review that he wrote, and I go through it, and I cut out the devilishly complicated, and then I Xerox it. Uh, I want, I, 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 when I work hard to write a book, I want it read a little harder. However, they are short. You can read them if you pay attention on a trip. You can. I don't know if you can read them on a trip from here to San Francisco, but you could read them from here to New York, maybe from here to New York. Yeah. What does an audience think of the impossible question that Stockton's The Lady and the Tiger talked about? Because in writing, we call it ambiguity. Uh, ambiguous mystery novels and suspense novels are unusual. Very, very rarely. Let me put it again this way. You've got to solve something. If you want to leave a loose end, fine. I love loose ends. I hate things to be tied up. As a playwright, William Inge, I always hated Inge's work because it is too neat. It is tied up in a box. He touches all squares. Uh, everything is answered. Most mystery novels, everything is answered. But if you don't want to leave, you could probably get away with leaving something unanswered. I get away with leaving it unanswered, on the, on the, as I mentioned earlier, on the idea that very often my people cannot be caught legally. They're morally guilty, and so you are left with a man in the world who probably will never... Well, one of them, I have a lady, and I ended up by saying she'll never do it again. She got a couple... She didn't actually kill anybody herself. She got a couple of boyfriends to kill a couple of other boyfriends, and so on. Uh, she'll never do it again, so she'll probably never be caught. But yet, she is really the one who did the murders, and that you might call a slightly open end, but it's not. The crime is solved. We know who actually did it, even though she's going free. I do have one book where I end it with the detective and the sheriff. The, 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 so -called, the killer has been convicted and sent to jail, but actually, morally, he is not guilty. I usually work the other way. Usually they're morally guilty, legally not guilty. He's a case where he's legally guilty, morally not. And it ends with the detective and the sheriff going off to the state capitol in California to see if they can get him, get somehow start a fight to get him off. So it is left open-ended as to whether or not he will ever get off. But they're going to fight for him, so I do leave it open-ended. Uh, still, you must solve essentially the whole thing. You must solve enough to satisfy the reader. You can leave something soon. No, I had a, you know, oh. Um, Sue was asking about writing under other names. I'm surprised she's been writing so long without writing under other names. Uh, the reason you write under other names is that you write for more than one publisher. Or, all right, you've got three reasons. One, you write for more than one publisher. Two, you may write more than one series for the same publisher. I did both. You turn on a lot of books sometimes in a year, particularly in a mystery or in science fiction or something like this, and they don't want that many books from the same author. They figure they can't sell them until you get very well known, and they all start saying that you're now the same guy. And the libraries, of course, always do that, although I understand that's changing, thank the Lord. Uh, they put them always under your own name. The other reason is, of course, a snobbish one very often. You reserve your own name for your, what you consider your good work. In my case, it's been everything. 
I write straight short stories under my own name. I sell them to literary magazines, and I don't make any money. But I love them. And they take me a long time to write, very often. Sometimes not. Uh, I still do. I write two mainstream novels under my own name also. If I ever write another mainstream, it will be under my own name. Uh, so that when I got into the mystery field, I adopted a first pseudonym, which was Michael Collins, which was a terrible mistake. I did it for the Irish patriot, Mike Collins, who was a free stater back in 1922. Oh, somewhere about 26, I think. Um, and was ambushed by de Valera. And uh, I took that name. It had not occurred to me that Michael Collins is unfortunately a very common Irish name. There are more Mike Collinses around than you shake a stick at. And it's very, it's just too bad, that's all. I wish I hadn't taken such a common name. The others I simply then took because I was writing other publishers. Random didn't want Mike Collins, so I started with uh, Mark Sadler. And then John Crow, but at random because it was another series. And William Arden, which I got off the milk truck, uh, which was uh, for Dodd Mead. And then when Bob Merrill wanted a series, I had to invent still another guy. But he only lasted, that was Carl Decker. He only lasted one book. I didn't get along with them at Bob Merrill. But that's why you do it. So, you know, there's, uh, if you write more than one and they don't want it, you'll do it. We have a, a writer here. He'll be, on, he'll be on my mystery panel. Comes up. Who got, he had a very funny situation. He had an agent. He had two books going. Same, and uh, the agent really didn't want to send the second book out until it got a result on the first. But was sitting on it. So Charlie said, no, I don't want that. Send it out under a pseudonym. Sure enough, they did. And that one, of course, got bought. So here he is under a pseudonym now, you see. Which happens to be Michael Carson. I could have killed him. And there you are. Uh, no, he was forced to start under a pseudonym because he had two manuscripts out at the same time, in this case. And then he, got, he unfortunately got stuck with the pseudonym rather than with his own. And uh, it, it will happen. Usually it's done for that reason. Unless you want to hide yourself. People do. The Japanese do it out of, uh, because of, it's, it's just the way they do it. They're all pseudonyms in Japan. Everybody, everyone who writes is a pseudonym. There's a hand over there, yeah. Yeah. What are some of my own favorite books that I've written? Oh, come on. I love them all. Uh, all right. My real favorites, probably, any of the Collins series, and there's 11 of them. I like them all. I really do. Act of Fear is my first, so hit that one. And I always like the last one I wrote. It's called The Slasher. It's a little different. I really suggest that I really change things in The Slasher. For one thing, I let you know who killed, who did the killing. I do the opposite. You know, supposedly... The great goal of all mystery writers, Ken Miller had it, and others, is that the last word in the book is the name of the murderer, that you go that far. And I decided, hell with that, I'll go the opposite. I'll tell you who did it 40 pages from the end, but I don't tell you why. And you have to go all the way to the end before you find out why. Uh, that's called a slasher, and I like that. That's my latest, and I'll always like my latest. The other two I like best are one called Here to Die. It's by uh, Mark Sadler. I don't know if you can ever even find it in the library. And one called A Touch of Darkness by John Crow. That's the one which has the open end. Touch of A Touch of Darkness. That's a random house book. But it's long out of print. You'll find them in bookstores and, uh, I mean, you know, in secondhand stores and uh, where they're charging an arm and a leg for them now because Dodd Mead has small editions. So does that. Uh, but you can find them in the library. They're all, they're all in the Santa Barbara Library. Oh, they're all under lens in the Santa Barbara Library, unfortunately. As they put them, all except Sadler, they haven't found me out. Sadler are under Sadler, the other four are all under Lynn. Now, suppose the Library of Congress is going to change this and allow us from now on to be cataloged under our pseudonyms, but it's too late for me. It's very annoying. You, you work hard to differentiate the books and get them lumped together. People go in looking for Crow and they can't find him. Really? Then I saw another hand. I know I did. 
Oh, okay. Charlie. Now, you know that's a loaded question, Charlie. Do I work best in the morning hours? I work morning, noon, and night. All of them. I work seven days a week, eight to five during the day, five to 11 at night, Monday through Friday. And on weekends, I work just during the day. I don't work at night. I like to write. So I work all the time. That's what I do. What else would I do? You know, the old story I've told a million people, John D. McDonald is the one who said, the reason he writes seven days a week, which he does, is that they're, what else are you going to do before five o'clock? At five o'clock, he knows what to do. But that's what he does. Now, I don't. I don't drink hardly at all. Um, but I like to write. Of course, I take days off. Every other Wednesday, I take the whole day off and go to a writer's lunch we have here. It's fun. Uh, I take my kids to school. I drive them. Well, they don't. They both drive now. But I do everything everyone else does. You continually are interrupted. Uh, I work with the radio on. I either listen to either music or the ball game. I have a telephone, which I answer, and all this kind of... Other guys don't. Ken Miller was, and uh, Margaret Miller were uh, incommunicado when they worked. They divided the day in half. I forget which did which. I think Ken worked in the mornings and Maggie in the afternoons. But when they were there, they were utterly inviolable. Utterly. If Maggie's car broke down, or she didn't, if she lost the key to her car, she would have to wait till 5 o'clock to call Ken. She would not call him. If something was wrong, she would just sit at the side of the road and wait three hours. Oh, yeah. They made, that was the deal they made. But they only worked that morning. So Ken took six months to write a book. Whereas, you see, with my hours, if I took three months, I was actually writing longer than Ken was. And I, and I know I, I like to write, so I write long hours. Look, it's what I do. What else would one do? What else is fun besides writing? That's fun. Any other questions? All right. I left anything to say for the panel. Uh, me? New Yorker, essentially.